Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to a Tuesday afternoon edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I'm joined, as I am every single Tuesday, by Fangraphs John Taylor. John, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Bonjour. I'm doing quite well for myself on this Tuesday afternoon. Bonjour. Are you a? Uh, can you can you speak any French? I just did, and that's all I've got. <laughs> Do you? Speak I've just exhausted other? the entirety of my French. Okay. That's like perhaps uh, uh, I, I can do a few things. I was going to I realized I, I took four years of Latin in high school and then two years of Latin in college. And okay. it doesn't it doesn't work in real life. Yes, it helps with uh, identifying words that I'm unfamiliar with. But uh, in terms of being able to really maximize those years in the classroom uh, out in my daily life, it does uh, not paid off because speaking latin to someone else it's just uh it's not a thing no not unless you're really into some kind of very strange uh preservation or reenactment society or you think you're a you know cicero or something well it's also annoying because (laughs) one of the things i don't miss about latin and this is how you always uh break into a major league baseball conversation john is you you get into the nitty-gritty of the latin dead language Um, Mm -hmm. is that word order doesn't matter and you have to be familiar with the endings and all that kind of stuff. So translating was always just such a pain in the ass because you had to look at every single word. There was no way to zoom through Latin coursework. No, not really. No, you, you just, you pulled out your little Latin dictionary and tried to figure out your declensions and your cases and all that. I don't miss it. I don't miss it, John. I can't, I can't say I miss it either. So, how many years did you take of Latin? Uh, all four years of high school. Okay. So we're on the same page. Look at us. You and yeah. me. I mean, if nothing else, it definitely improved my vocabulary and perspicacity. Oh, I Big like SAT it. words like that. There you go. I like it when you keep things capricious on this podcast, John. I like you're just throwing it in now there, too. <laughs> um, do you speak any other languages fluently? Uh, Spanish, but that's it. Okay. Okay. I, like I know it. a tiny. I know a tiny bit of German. A tiny bit of German. Now look tiny at John Taylor, four dimensional John Taylor. Um, speaking of four dimensional, the four bases there in Major League Baseball, that, John. Come on. <laughs> come on. Get out of here. Um, there was a really good piece in uh, Beyond the Box Score. Uh, I read, I think it was uh, yesterday that I came across this. It may have been two days ago. Um, very good baseball website that I read every day. And they had a piece on baseball and strikeouts and uh, just the no-hitter rate that we're on and just the amount of strikeouts. I didn't realize just how many records this season's going to break on these fronts. Um, when you read this piece, John, was this something that you've been thinking about a lot that you're concerned about that you think Theo Epstein can solve? Or is it really just going to be, let's just keep manipulating this baseball. That's going to, it's going to fix everything. Yeah. I, so that's the hard part is that when you start manipulating the baseball, when you start doing stuff like that, there are all those kinds of unintended consequences. Um, when you do, cause like, it's not like MLB can test this stuff out, right? They can't introduce a ball. I guess they, could if they really wanted to i mean i guess that's the weird thing about the atlantic league thing is you think that they would just like have given them a new ball and been like can you just test this out for six months and see what mm-hmm. happens 
But for whatever reason, because they don't want to test the ball or because they don't want to really even admit that they've changed the ball, um, you keep getting these weird bounces between. Well, I mean, the let me let me let me let me make this point, though. The baseball, there's only so much you can do with the baseball to fix or change what is currently the issue in Major League Baseball, which is that pitchers are just too good with too many tools, too many weapons, too much. They're just too good. And at a certain point, ball or no ball, and certainly the way MLB has monkeyed around with the ball has probably made this worse, but the way that pitching exists now and the way that pitching essentially forces you to hit has made it so that strikeouts are inevitable and so that low batting average is inevitable. Because, and I know people point to stuff like, uh, launch angle, uh, if everyone weren't trying to hit home runs. People are trying to hit home runs because that is pretty much the only way to beat pitchers right now. You're not going to string together rallies like, like it used to happen in the 80s and the 70s of just like three straight singles and like, you know, just making contact. on it. That's just not how this game works, especially because you're very unlikely to be able to get anywhere doing that. First of all, you're, you're trying to hit guys who throw 98 with wipeout sliders. Like, making contact with that in any kind of authoritative way is already difficult enough on itself. On top of that, then you have defensive positioning to deal with. It is eating up a lot of those balls that used to go for hits through the infield or through, or just, you know, that, I mean, I it, it feels like a cliche at this point, but I think everyone has had it where you're watching a game, someone hits a ball that's going up the middle or toward one of the, you know, either pull or, or whatever it happens to be, and you're thinking to yourself, oh, that's a hit, and then you realize, just as you say that or think that, there's a defender standing right there because of perfect defensive positioning. Mm-hmm. So between those two things, it really does just make sense, especially when you want to, when you, when you take the fact, like, you know, you, you have to be able to, most pitchers now throw their fastballs high in the strike zone. There's very little you can do with those. Uh, a high fastball is very hard to hit and very hard to hit with authority. So you're pretty much in this position where the only thing you can do is try to aim for the fences. And then MLB went around and screwed with the ball to make it harder to hit home runs because I also don't know that MLB fundamentally understands what the problem is. Um, but the vibe I get is that what like the, this the only real solution to this, if there can be said to be a solution to this, is you have to find some way to... I don't know in pitching because that doesn't really I, I don't think this is about like making one side worse but I do think it is about stuff like you know maybe it isn't necessarily moving the mound back but maybe it's stuff in that direction we haven't had an offensive environment this week since 68 and that was when they did things like introduce the DH and lower the pitching mound and, and all that other kind of stuff and I don't know that there's necessarily a whole lot more of that left you can do because I mean there are only so many ways you can kind of monkey with baseball before it stops being baseball but I don't know I, I just feel like if the strikeouts are a problem, and I do think we actually had a point where there was just so little actually happening in a, happening, excuse me, in a game, and where pitchers are just so overpoweringly dominant at this point that there needs to be some kind of change, I'll be damned if I know what it is, though. Um, I'm, I, if Theo Epstein has ideas, great, would love to see them, uh, but I don't know, man. It, it's also just weird to think about Theo being that guy in that forefront of the, like, let's make baseball more aesthetically pleasing. And it's like, you're a large part of the reason why it isn't aesthetically pleasing in the first place. Like the work you did with the Red Sox and the Cubs, especially with the Cubs in, in terms of, of tanking stuff, really ushered in this point where we're at, where teams value efficiency and well production over everything else, including, including winning, especially cost-effective production. 
and where teams no longer feel that need to produce. I mean, I don't know if teams have ever felt the need to produce a game that was oriented toward what the fans wanted, but especially back in a point where, especially when gate revenue mattered way more, I think there was more of an impetus toward... Maybe maybe it's better to say that teams operated in a way that kind of by default ended up being what fans wanted to see, if that makes sense, because there wasn't really any... There wasn't a whole lot of, of counterthought to that. The baseball orthodoxy just was what it was for a very long time. I don't know. It's it, This is a very hard puzzle Major League Baseball has to try to solve, and I'm not particularly confident that they have the people who can fix it because all their attempts to change it seem to have made it worse. And if Theo's the guy who can maybe turn that around, great. But like I said, I, I don't know what you do at this point. Like, I, I'm not really sure what the solution is. I know there was an article I, I didn't get a chance to read on Baseball Prospectus about basically how pitchers need restrictor plates, that there needs to be some way to level the playing field pitching-wise, and maybe it's stuff like, you know, you're, you are essentially making starters go longer, or you are restricting mm-hmm. the number of pitchers available on an, on an active roster, or something along those lines. But I definitely think something has to change at this point, because, I mean, and, and this is the easy shorthand, you know, we've already seen six no-hitters this year. Or seven? Are we up to seven? No, it's six, right? I think it's six. Six, seven if you count Bumgarners. I, and then no, we're not counting Bumgarners. That's, okay, that's I, I don't, I mean, that's not an argument I even particularly, like, I don't care one way or the other, but, like... I don't really it, care, but it's just, it, it seems silly to me to count. It, it's, well, just, it's also, like, if MLB says it is not an official no-hitter, then it's not an official no-hitter. We can yell and cry and hold our breath and stomp our feet, but that doesn't change anything. Mm-hmm. To me, it's more that, you know, when you're getting no... I mean, you always get no-hitters out of out of guys like Wade Miley and Spencer Turnbull. Like, you look at the list of no-hitters thrown in the past, you'll find plenty of dudes who were Wade Miley-level pitchers. But six of them in a month and a half is crazy. And not it's not just the six we got, but also just pitchers look... And I know it's going to be funny given the topic we're going to talk about next. Pitchers really just look better than they ever have been because they are better than they ever have been. They throw harder, they stay healthier longer, they train better, they know how to shape and and command their pitches better than ever, they can sequence. Like They have all these tools and skills available to them pitchers have never had before. And it's making them borderline impossible to hit. And that's the part I especially don't know how you fix. You know, do you say, like, you just can't throw above 95 anymore? Like, you can only throw a slider 15 times a game total? I, I I don't know, but I'd be very curious to see what, not just what Theo Epstein thinks could fix this, but what the what exactly the problems Theo Epstein thinks exist. Like, you know, because we're, we're just two guys with microphones, but, like, mm. you know, Theo might have something else entirely he thinks is wrong with baseball. So, this is something I wanted to get your perspective on as well with this subject matter, is that, like, when I'm watching the Braves, especially mm. this season, like... I I don't know if you you're like this, but I haven't written down. Man, baseball's broken. For me, it I, my enjoyment's not any different. I just look at it as like a different era. Does that make sense? Where I'm just like this. Yeah, is, and I'm conditioned to it. So I think it's a little over over the top with the way we we talk about baseball because I don't know. For me, and that's personally, entirely fair. Yeah, I don't know if that's like with you and the Red Sox. No, and I mean, like, I'm not sitting here, like, grumbling as I watch my game being like, everything is bad now, I hate all these, I hate all this this sport, the sport is awful. No, and because that's the thing, baseball, like any other sport, is cyclical, like, eras change, teams change, players change, and then the game adapts to, you know, match that change. I think the thing you worry about now, excuse me, is 
the way the game has changed, in particular with the way that, like I said before, pitchers have all these advantages and skills and tools and ways to make themselves better. I mean, you see guys, I think DeGrom is probably the perfect example, who is very clearly a talented pitcher, but someone who went from being a non-prospect who threw like 93-94 to a guy who basically turned himself into Nolan Ryan. Mm-hmm. Like, and which is not to say hitters can't do equivalent things, but like the way pitchers can build themselves up and make themselves great now and when you see the dominance of guys like Garrett Cole and DeGrom and, you know, like Max Scherzer and Clayton Kershaw, you're like, this, we're at a point, I think, where the pendulum needs to swing back. And I think in Major League Baseball, there is probably a desire to give it a little nudge. Problem is, every time they've given it a nudge, they've made it worse. So I'm not really sure how much Major League Baseball knows kind of what's wrong and how to fix it. But no, I, I agree with you. This isn't like the death of baseball or anything. But I do think we've kind of reached this, what's the best way to put it? I don't know how much more kind of pitcher-friendly this can get before it just becomes something that people either don't care about anymore or don't want to watch or before it becomes just a version of the sport that doesn't really make sense anymore. Yeah, I, we'll, we'll have to see what happens here. But I, I just, um, I don't know. I think it's a complicated uh, matter that uh, will take a lot of time and things like you say will gradually change um what will not change john is the baltimore orioles starting pitching being absolutely absolutely atrocious i hadn't seen just how bad it was um for them in the month of may because they're like i think 10 games under 500 as of this recording the orioles starters john have a league worst 6.17 era in the month of may um i I just i can't believe that because also john this includes John Means. Like, John Means has thrown 21 innings uh, with a 1.69 ERA over his three May starts. Again, one of those was a no-hitter. Um, and they still have a 6.17 ERA. What, what do you make of this uh, Baltimore Orioles starting rotation? Well, yes, they're bad. And <laughs> I don't think... If you go back and listen to our Orioles season review, preview, whatever you want to call it, um, I don't think either of us was making the argument that they were going to be anything close to good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I remember and I, I wish I'd been louder about it. I remember saying I think Means is a good bounce back guy. I think he should be closer to the guy he was in 2019 than 2020. Point for me. <laughs> but the rest of that rotation, I mean, you're looking at 32 year old Matt Harvey throwing 92 miles an hour. It's like the, you weren't really expecting much there, were you? Like nobody was. Nobody was expecting much out of Jorge Lopez or Bruce Zimmerman or Dean Kramer or you know, the whoever else you are. Actually, it's, it's actually kind of amazing for as bad as the Orioles rotation has been, ex- aside from means, all of those guys have been able to make their starts. Like, they've actually been really consistent in just having the same five guys make their turns. They've only had three other pitchers make starts, uh, one of whom is Adam Plutko, who, whoa, man. But I think, like, but I think that that's the problem right there. When you have a team where you're willfully employing Adam Plutko and giving him the most innings of any reliever on your team, although I think part of that is because he just he's their designated mop-up guy, and there's a lot of mopping up that needs to be done for the Orioles rotation, you can't really expect anything better than what you've got. I mean, this is just what happens when you do not try. And that's the thing. The Orioles aren't trying. Because this is the other part of it. What's funny to me about this Orioles rotation being bad is that normally a bad Orioles rotation is a collection of guys, right? It's your Wade's LeBlanc and your Wade's Miley and your Matt's Harvey. It's the washed-up dudes. It was like Felix who was briefly in camp with them, I think. Like, It's the washed-up dudes who have nowhere else to go. 
right? And so when they're bad, you're like, well, what do you expect? They're washed up dudes. They're not any good. The thing with the Orioles right now, and I can't tell if this is a, I guess it's a problem right now, but I'm curious to see like how, what happens going forward is that the, the dudes they have struggling in their rotation, Harvey aside, who isn't actually pitching all that poorly, but is certainly not all that useful either. Jorge Lopez, Bruce Zimmerman, Dean Kramer, these are all young guys. Lopez is 28, Zimmerman's 26, Kramer is 25. These are the guys that they kind of, I imagine, wanted to spend 2021 seeing, especially because those guys only got so much run last year in between the short season and no minors, that you know, you, you need to try to figure out, okay, are these guys part of the plan or not? Mm-hmm. And so far the answer is no, because not, <laughs> none of Lopez, Zimmerman, or Kramer has really shown much of anything. Lopez is a nice strikeout rate, but they all give up too many home runs. And you look at their fielding independent, or just look at their peripherals or fielding independent area, everything is just says bad. Yeah. And what's this, I think especially kind of worrisome for the Orioles is it's not just like, oh, well, these are our young guys who are getting hit up, not the crappy veterans we expected to get hit up. But if these guys don't work, what are you doing for the rest of the season? There's no one really left to call up in Baltimore. Maybe you give Mike Bauman a shot or you really, really push Grayson Rodriguez for some reason. But I kind of I kind of assume Baltimore is not really interested in that because, again, that would involve trying. And they're not going to be trading for guys at the deadline. It's not like Mike Elias is sitting around going, this rotation's awful. We really need to fix it. He's probably just shrugging his shoulders and going, what are you going to do? And I think this is what has always kind of made me the saddest about situations like Baltimore, where you end up in these situations where you have a terrible rotation because your front office didn't try to build a good one. Mm-hmm. And now you're in a position where there's no way to fix your, your rotation because your front office isn't going to import veterans or or all-stars to make it better. They're just going to let these young guys keep taking their lumps because they want to try to find something. When does that end? When does it stop? Like, when when do you ever get off? It's like, the I think the Mariners are in a similar boat. When do you ever get off the rebuild carousel in some cases? You can just, it turns out you can just do this indefinitely. Especially if you're, I mean, I know the Orioles have a much improved farm system and the idea is that eventually in a year or two years, whatever it is, they will have the guys who can actually produce. But for right now, there's just nothing there. It reminds me a lot of the Red Sox rotation last year when it was just kind of like you saw those guys struggling and then you're like, but there's nothing to replace them. There's literally, you just have to keep going with these guys. And the funny thing is it might actually get worse because I do think if there is... There are two guys, I think, on this Orioles team especially who I would not be surprised to see their names bandied about uh, on the trade market. Well, there are a bunch of guys, but there are two two names in particular that I wouldn't be surprised to see. One is Trey Mancini, who's had a fantastic comeback from, from well, let cancer. Well, let me put a nail in the coffin there. I talked to okay. Rich DeBroff of Baltimore Baseball last week. Okay. Uh, he and John Means, he said, very unlikely, those two. Okay, because the other, the other name I was going to say was Means because... Yeah. Well, if you want to talk about the guy who can bring you back the prospects that'll make this rebuild even better, if that's what Baltimore really, truly cares about, a 28-year-old starter with an ERA under two who is still two years away from arbitration, or at least a full year away from arbitration, he'll bring in a fortune. It Does that suck for Orioles fans? Hell yeah. I don't want to see that happen to Orioles fans. I want them to have some nice things. But hell, like if you're really serious about like, hitting rock bottom and the Orioles are just constantly seeming to try to drill down even further past that. I don't know. I mean, I think it's more likely you see them try to move someone like a, you know, I was going to say Michael Franco, but oh my God, he's been terrible. Um, Pat Valaika. There's really not a whole lot on this team. That's kind of the other thing. There's only so much you can expect out of the talent level that the Orioles have assembled. It's just not, it's not this year. And that just, 
boy, is that depressing. When is it going to be this year? Like, well, that's the thing. When is it going to be this year for the Orioles of Baltimore? Uh, probably never. I mean, they're on a, they're on pace to win 59 games. Is that really? Is that 59? That's a 59 and 103. That's what they're on pace for. Oh my God. Yeah, they're really bad. And they, and that's such the thing. This fun is going to start last year that we'll never forget 2020. The, the joy of a 60 game small sample. But th- this is the thing though. They have been this now for since the start of 2017, really since the back half or yes. Well, not the start of 2017 since I'm uh, really, I guess the midway point of 2018, but especially at least in terms of results, this is who they've been now for four and a half seasons. When does this stop? Like, when do you actually start trying? Because the Orioles have not tried in five seasons. Man, I <laughs> the Red Sox also not just going into the dumps for a couple years really hurts this too. Where like you could make the where you you just you kind of hope that uh, one of these teams fall off because the Blue Jays are coming and they're I think gonna keep and that's keep and that's rising. The thing. This is for for as much as like yeah the Orioles have a plan it's accumulate all these youngsters and be good okay great they have the richest the second richest team in baseball if not the richest team in baseball in their division they have arguably the smartest team in baseball in their division they have a team loaded with prospects in their division they have a Red Sox team that is good and can get better if it so chooses in their division where is the opening here for the Baltimore Orioles I don't know. Like I, that I that's know. kind of what has always gotten me about this. It's like you're not in the AL Central. Right. Like I think this you gotta is move gonna them. be I don't know. I, I mean I don't know. I'm glad I don't have to make decisions in Baltimore, but it just feels like at a certain point, like once you've steered hard enough into that skid, you don't really have any choice but to try to ride it out. But boy, is it ugly all the way through. Like there's just very little especially again, like that's what kind of gets me is the guys in that rotation where it's like these are all the kids who are like it probably just hurts to just seeing them just get whooped on like that. Speaking of uh, brutal stretches, John Taylor, Eduardo Rodriguez, one in three with a six point four eight ERA in May. Not was great. April a fluke? Was that it? I don't think April was a fluke. I think there's some some command issues going on right now. Um, his fastball is getting hit up. His cutter is getting hit pretty hard. I the, the, neither of those, but the slider is getting hit hard. All the grits. That's not one of his bigger pitches. Um, it, it's not really nothing's really working right now for him. I think, and I don't know if it's as simple as that, but I think it really is simple. It's like when you don't have the fastball command and when you don't have the fastball results, it's really, really hard to get anything else going. None of your secondary pitches are really going to play off that. Um, I do think there's probably some element of, yeah, I know I was going to actually, I don't, I don't know where I was going with that. It, that's just the reality of it. It's just, you don't have good fastball command. You don't have good fastball results. That's pretty much it. You're not going to be able to get anything going. And I think the question the Red Sox probably have is because the other thing is with with Eduardo and, you know, obviously he missed all of last season because of covid issues. I think the question is, is he I don't, I don't want to say he's not. I, I don't know. Only the Red Sox know and only Eduardo Rodriguez knows like how over that he is. But I also even beyond like whatever lingering covid effects he may or may not have. The dude basically hadn't thrown a competitive pitch in over a year. So I do think there's probably an element too here. Maybe there's some stamina issues. Maybe there's just some some rust that he's trying to work through. But yeah, right now it's it, it's pretty ugly with regards, especially to the fastball. It's it's just when you can't 
like I said, when you can't put that where you want it to, when you can't avoid the heart of the strike zone with it, when it's getting hit hard, there's not really a whole lot you can do with that, unfortunately. Jacob deGrom returning today, John. Some some ni- some nice news for uh, the New York Mets because everyone else is injured, but Jacob everyone DeGrom, else is like McNeil is gone, Conforto is gone. But DeGrom returns. What do you make of the injury issues and the return of DeGrom for the Mets? Um, well, I guess, like you said, the good news is DeGrom is back. Like, that's... <laughs> I don't know what else... Nobody what wants to win news. the NL East, John. No, and that's the other good thing is, is you know, I, I, I have a couple friends, obviously, who are Mets fans, and that's you know, one of the things you mentioned is, hey, well, no one else is doing well, but their lineup right now is unbelievable. Like... They literally like bought Cameron Maben off the Cubs and then immediately plugged him in the number three spot. James McCann was playing first base the other day. Something named Wilfredo Tovar is on this roster. Brandon Drury's hanging around here. I thought he retired. Like, I mean, there's, I mean, here's their entire injured list: Pete Alonso, J.D. Davis, Luis Guillorme, Jeff McNeil, Albert Almora, Michael Conforto, Brandon Nimmo, Jose Martinez, which granted has not played this year, but whatever. Kevin Pillar, Carlos Carrasco, Taiwan Walker, DeGrom, as he said, comes off the injury list today. Noah Syndergaard, Seth Lugo, Dellen Batances, and Tommy Hunter. That's, a, that's half the roster. There's nothing you can do about that. There's just nothing you can do about that. No matter how much depth you built up, no team can survive that level of injuries. It's not possible. And so I don't, like, all the Mets can do is just tread water and try to survive. That's literally all they can do. There's, there's really nothing more beyond that. And now they're down this kid, Janeshwi Fargus who hurt himself trying to make a catch. I don't actually know that they have outfielders left. Mm. Like, I genuinely don't know how many outfielders they have left, if any, in their system. Like, I- I'm looking at their their depth charts now, and it's... Malik Smith is on this roster? Is, is in their AAA roster? That is a name. That is Mason, a name. Mason Williams is down here. Okay. Um, Drew Jackson, who I believe was on the Braves at one point. Sure. Um... If you want to go way further down into double A, you got a. <laughs> nope, there's nothing there. Um, yeah. They're obviously not going to call anyone up from single A. Like Chris Young just signed with the MLB Network, so I don't. Yeah, think that, that's another there. option gone. Like they yeah. actually, like, someone asked Jay Bruce if he felt if he, <laughs> he's been th- like that's that's how bad it's gotten. It's like when a reporter's <laughs> reaching out to Jay Bruce to be like, so you see what's going on with the Mets, and even he's like, no, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what you do if you're the Mets. There's nothing you really can do. Like at some point, you just have to make trades. Like you just have to go get guys on other rosters who are just not playing right now because you get by on starting Khalil Lee and Jose Peraza and Wilfredo Tovar on a regular basis. Like I don't care how bad the analyst is, you have to do something. But man, it's just again all the dudes I just read off, and especially knowing that Conforto and McNeil are probably going to be out through June, and that. Carrasco had a setback and because it's the Mets and which is funny too because it's like ordinarily like this is like if this were happening to the Mets of, of over the last 15 years we'd all be laughing being like haha Mets they ended up in a position where they're starting Cameron Maven no offense to Cameron Maven who's a very nice man but this they really did try this offseason to build that depth up mm-hmm. and then of course because it's the Mets they got hit with the worst wave of injuries they've had probably in a decade so just goes to show that no matter how much the Mets change, the universe will not let them be different. Are we sure lasting millage can't suit up? You've got to bring the thrillage back. <laughs> you, at this point, they should be like at, they should be like calling dudes in Korea and Japan and being like, are you sure you want to stay over there? Like, 
Like Adam Jones is a va- is around. He's eventually gonna have to leave to go play for Team USA, but he's around. I love Adam Jones. Get him on. The oh, who doesn't love Adam Jones? Jones? We gotta get Adam Jones. The well, probably Albert Breer. Um, Oof. Deep cut for the sports lovers, sports aficionados. Deep cut right there. Mm. Um, the Yankees, John, you're excited yes. about this. They've won six straight. Uh, wait, did mm-hmm. they play last night? Uh, no, they were off last night. Okay, yeah. So there's they've still won six straight. Um, the rotation's figuring it out. Talon getting some stuff figured out there. Um, Kluber getting some stuff figured out. They have fired 35 consecutive scoreless innings per uh, Gary Cook of MLB.com. Tied for the second longest in franchise history behind a 40 inning, 40 inning stretch in May of 1932. John, are the Yankees hmm. going to be fine? Yeah, I mean, I I always thought they were. It, mostly it was an issue of like, I think when when they were bad, we were always telling ourselves they're not going to hit this bad forever. And mm-hmm. well, some of them are, but they are also going to get guys back. Um, they've gotten Luke Voigt back. They have gotten um some relief help back. I I think if anything, like you, I think Chapman gave up his like first run of the season. First run of the season, yeah, and it's been helped obviously by by guys like Cole and Chapman just having tremendous seasons just from the jump. Um, I think what the issue has been for the Yankees is just the lack of consistency and just the injuries that have come in. They've lost Aaron Hicks now for the season. Stanton is out after getting off to a red hot start. Um, they're very thin in the outfield right now. I know Clint Frazier has been playing through some neck stuff and, uh, Brett Gardner has obviously struggled, but, um, still relying on guys like Rugnet Odor to help pick up the slack. Gary Sanchez is just... I, I I don't know what's going on there. DJ LeMay, who has not been anywhere close to his uh, MVP caliber self, but the rotation has really helped. And I think the important thing is when we looked at this Yankees team in the offseason, I think a lot of people, myself included, figured that if there was going to be one problem spot for them or one potential problem spot that was probably going to be the difference between a playoff team and a World Series team, that it was the rotation behind Cole. That they were relying on a lot of question marks in how how good is Kluber going to be coming back after missing an entire season. How good is Jordan Montgomery going to be coming back off Tommy John surgery? How good is Domingo Herman going to be coming back off suspension? How good is Tyon going to be coming off two Tommy Johns and just a career full of struggle in Pittsburgh? Where you just knew, too, that once he left Pittsburgh, it's like you're going to have to become an entirely different pitcher, and that's going to take some time. And for the most part, I mean, Tyon's really the one guy there who just hasn't produced all that well. But you can see the stuff. It just hasn't really translated. And Montgomery's been very up and down. But it certainly helps that Herman has looked a lot like his pre-suspension self. Uh, it really helps, obviously, that Kluber looks closer to his old Cy Young self. Um, that I mean, that 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 no hitter he threw was just classic Kluber. It was just pumping this, pumping the strike zone with fastballs, and then just getting guys to swing through the cutter and the slider. It's it was just beautiful stuff. But or cutter slider curveball. He has like 19 different pitches, and they, none of them have any like pro- proper classification. <laughs> Obviously, it also helps when you have Garrett Cole having just an absurd, stupid season. Mm-hmm. Like that will always help. He's and like good. you said, Chap- Chapman only giving up a single run so far. He's, he has struck out 37 of the 70 batters he's faced. That's absolutely crazy. And they've also gotten really good results in the bullpen, not just from the guys who matter. Because you know this was a team also that was going to be down Zach Britton for a while. And that traded away Adam Ottavino, but they've gotten really good results out of Jonathan Loisaga, out of Louis Lutke, out of you know some of the other younger guys they've tossed in there, like Michael King, or uh, briefly Galbert Abreu. Like they have options there too. So 
I mean, I think the Yankees are fine. I they were my first place team before the season. They were continued to be my first place team through the season. They are my first place team now predicted for the rest of the season. I think it's just a matter of getting those guys offensively kind of back on track and being able to patch up the outfield enough. And maybe this is a team now that Hicks is down um, for the rest of the season and they don't really have internal options outfielder-wise. Maybe this is a team where instead of looking at Trevor Story, maybe now that Glaber Torres is hitting better, maybe they're going to start looking at trying to get some outfield help. Because maybe mm-hmm. that's also going to be... I'm certain that's also going to be cheaper than getting Trevor Story. But, you know, I, I think that's a definite possibility in terms of, you know, what they might target next. Because... Every, I think everywhere else they're doing okay. It's just a matter of getting LeMahieu out of his slump and getting Stanton back. But I do think otherwise outfield is probably what they want to target, uh, depending obviously what happens with the rotation in the bullpen. Um, do we do we need to start preparing for NL Cy Young, Zach Wheeler, John Taylor? <sighs> I mean, in a world where Jacob deGrom exists, no. Um, Will he get enough stars, though? I don't know. Grom, I, I think if he can keep up. I think the I think the thing with Degrom is even if he doesn't get as many starts or throw as many innings as Wheeler, it's not going to be a huge gap, and the quality of those innings and starts will be good enough to overcome it. But man, that, that's not that's not to take anything away from Wheeler though. He's been absolutely fantastic. Um, the big thing you look at for him is the fastball in particular, his four seamer. He's throwing at a, about the same velocity, but he's getting much better results on it. Batters at 297 off it last year. They're at 211 this year. All the peripherals are great. The strikeout percentage is way up. The putaway percentage is up. Um, it, it's just getting better results overall. And that, of course, as I was saying with Eduardo Rodriguez, you have good results. Your fastball it sets everything else up. I think it's also good. He's, th- he's definitely throwing his slider more and his sinker less. Whoever told him to do that, good, good job. Sinkers are just not a thing that really should be thrown anymore at this point. Um, that slider has been great. It's got a strikeout or swing and miss rate of 33%, which is great. Um, the one thing I guess you you know you, you keep an eye on is he's giving up a lot more fly balls, but a fair mm. number of them turn into pop ups. So there's also that he's getting it's just getting a lot of weak contact. There's not a lot of hard contact against uh, Wheeler right now. His average exit velocity is in the 83rd percentile. His average hard hit rate is in, or his hard hit rate's in the 78th percentile. Um, you know Freak's they're, also they're doing uh, this. Sorry? Uh, Max Fried's also starting to do this, getting some soft yeah. contact, and he's pitching. And out. that's the thing. It's like you don't have to make everyone swing and miss all the time if you can just and, – and this is the thing. Like there's a there's that debate over how much control pitchers have over the level of contact batters can make and the mm-hmm. hardness and softness thereof. But if you're a guy like Wheeler who throws a 97-mile-an-hour fastball and you know locates it you know in on the hands, high above, whatever, and then busts that with sliders down low and curveballs down low – you're going to get good results because that, that fastball is going to be hard to square up. It's going to be hard to get underneath if you're throwing it high. And then because you're always in the back of your mind thinking slider, slider, uh, curveball, whatever it happens to be, you got to keep that in mind too. And you've got to be able to get ready when it's coming in low because he'll throw the fastball low too. So yeah, I, I really love what Wheeler's doing. He definitely seems to have figured something out just in terms of at least his pitch mix and his fastball command and I mean, this is this is a guy he's always been capable of being. I mean, when he got traded for Carlos Beltran, he was one of the better prospects in baseball. But yeah, it's it's uh it this is definitely like I think this this is the Zach Wheeler people have been expecting to be for a bit now, and I'm I'm just I'm glad we're seeing it because he's a he's just been a really really good pitcher. He's one of if not the reason the Phillies are actually still kicking around the NL East. Some quick trivia as we wrap up here today, John. 
Are you ready? Yes. Yes. Without looking, who leads okay. Major League Baseball in war at the present moment? Vlad Jr. No. Wow. Who is it? Max Muncy. Max Muncy. Maximum Muncy. <laughs> Jay Jaffe just wrote about him for, for, for fan graphs. Is that not oh, wild? I see. Well, we have Vlad Jr.'s uh, tops in F-War. Are you going by B-War? Uh, I think B-War, yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, by B-War, Muncy is fourth, so it's not exactly a huge difference. Okay, okay. John, what was your favorite thing in baseball? And we'll we'll wrap up there in the last week. Since last Tuesday, what was your favorite thing you saw? Favorite thing in baseball? That's a good one. That you have to be positive. Good... I want to add that to the weekly thing. Yeah, that's... negativity in the baseball world right now. There's a lot of negativity in baseball. I don't like it. I, I'm trying to enjoy this season. I, I mean, I like for as much as people talk about, as much as people have talked about, myself included, about too many no-hitters, too many no-hitters, it's still cool to see a guy get one. Yeah. Especially a guy like Spencer Turnbull, where it's like, Spencer Turnbull's not a guy who's going to have, have a long major league career, and he's not storied major league career that's that's was way better at baseball than i will ever be at anything in my life but he's not the kind of he's 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 like a wade miley would it surprise you if spencer turnbull turned in wade miley's career more or less honestly for spencer turnbull you'd be thrilled with wade miley's career he's been in the majors for like a decade and he's made a lot of money but i i think more to the point actually wade miley's been in baseball exactly a decade good job me um and has had a pretty okay career all things considered this is actually funny. Wade Miley's career ERA plus 98. That's perfect. That's the perfect Wade Miley career ERA plus. He's been exactly league average his career. I love that. That's amazing. But no, I, I guess that's it's turn, Turnbull's no hitter. Definitely one of those things where you're like, it's just it's just cool to see guys get that moment. Because even if it's even if everyone's throwing one, you still get to be on a list of guys, a short list of guys who can say that. And I think my other thing in terms of what doesn't sound like a short list, but is one. Um, So the the good dudes at Cespedes Family Barbecue, Jake Mintz and Jordan Schusterman, have, since the start of last season, been doing a running Twitter thread of guys making their major league debuts. Mm. Which is very, it's very nice to see because, again, one of those things you got to celebrate. A guy finally makes it and gets this moment, and it's a cool moment. The one that, but the, the funny thing to me is that that thread, I guess... Not, I'm sure they knew that, but like, got to the point where at the other day we got to MLB player number twenty thousand, like the twenty thousandth player in MLB history. One, I love that it ended up being like a third string catcher on the Mariners. That just feels perfectly appropriate to me. That that's who this big round number belongs to. Just this guy, this guy who might never play a single inning in Major League Baseball again, just happens to be number twenty thousand. And the other side of that was, as Roger Sherman pointed out, every single person who has ever appeared in a major league game in the entire century plus long history of the sport for dozens upon dozens of teams across over a hundred years would be half the attendance of your average major league stadium. You couldn't even fill a stadium with those guys. That's how exclusive and special being a major league baseball player is, even though there have been 20,000 of them. And that, that I just love for every guy this year and last year and any time is Who's gotten to who's gotten to make their way in and gotten that special moment? That's really cool because you are part of an insanely, insanely tiny fraternity. There you go. I like it, John Taylor. Thank you as always, sir. Yeah, my pleasure as always. All right, the Tuesday edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast rolls on where I am now joined by Ty Windish, who is, I guess, 
do we call coworker boss ty what what are you in relationship <laughs> to me in this podcast and the blue wire uh, podcast network definitely not boss okay. uh let's let's go with you know co-workers acquaintances hopefully mm. by the end of this friends there you go i like the positivity i like the positivity i'm also a stickler for the the uh the differentiation between a uh, friend and uh, acquaintance people misuse that all the time and i'll never forget my uncle uh making sure to uh tell my grandfather that he has a lot of acquaintances and not friends it was in a wild situation <laughs> um like the the mailman's not his friend that uh that is your that's fair that's yeah. unless, he unless... To all these people as his friends and it's like no these are not your friends these are acquaintances <laughs> If you don't do something with someone outside of the context that brings you together, like a work thing for either person, not friends, acquaintances, I'm sorry. Like work friends, I guess I'll accept. But to me, that's closer to acquaintances if, you, if you're not seeing them outside of whatever larger context brings you together. There are levels to this. Work friends is 100% acquaintances because work friends, yeah. the reason you throw that work word in front of the word friends is that once you no longer work at that place – you are no longer friends. You are not seeing that person. That that Precisely. is yeah, yeah. Uh, we're on the same page. See, this is how it works. This is how it works. And this is how you seamlessly transition into the Milwaukee Bucks and the Miami Heat. Um were are you still just reeling? Like what are you feeling after that first quarter and really that first half uh for Bryn Forbes and friends and just the the offensive onslaught that Milwaukee unloaded on Miami last night? I don't think reeling is the right word, more just like coasting on the elation mm. at this point. Um, it was great because after game one, there were two schools of thought, depending on if you were more high on Milwaukee or more high on Miami, right? Mm. One thing was going to change. Either Jimmy and Bam aren't going to have that quiet of games again for the heat or the Bucks aren't going to shoot five for 31 again, like the shooting is going to regress positively for the bucks. And that will be the difference. And in game two, it turned out the Jimmy and bam thing actually did basically hold up from game one. I think bam played a little better. Jimmy played even a bit worse than, than game one against Milwaukee's suffocating drop coverage defense that, that is working really well against the heat and the bucks shooting obviously regressed to the positive in a big way. Although I do think it's worth noting Bryn Forbes absolutely went off for sure. Mm -hmm. Six for nine, great performance. I mean, he he was bringing so much energy as well as points. But also, the Bucks ended up not shooting that much above their season average on the game as a whole. The first quarter, they built up the lead and held it all the way through for sure. I think they shot 66% in the first quarter. But they ended up only shooting like 41% on the game uh, altogether as opposed to like 38.9% on the year. So when all was said and done, they actually calmed down to fairly close to their average. The fact that, you know, they, they had that first quarter to start things off and build up that lead, I think that obviously was starting the game on the right note. I think really, though, their defense playing the way it has, neutralizing Miami's best players, is why that thing was a blowout all the way through, despite the, the offense coming back to earth. So that's why... It's such a there's so much elation to ride because it I don't think the game was quite as unsustainable as uh, some people are looking at it and and thinking. So you're you're not worried going in going back to Miami. Do you think they've figured out a lot with the Heat that this is going to be a situation where the Heat just don't have the offensive firepower with Bam really not doing enough offensively with Kendrick Nunn? I think 
leading the Heat in uh, shot attempts last night. Do you think that that's just going to ultimately doom the Heat in the series? Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, listen, would I be shocked if Miami won Game Three? No, not really. Before the series, I, I felt Bucks in five. The sweep certainly feels mm. a lot more possible now. But I, I felt Bucks in five coming in, and I think that still feels pretty good to me. I think that's probably at the end of the day the most likely outcome. But um, and you know, sometimes a team is just going to win a game at home. That's just the way it goes in the series. But to your point. Yeah, I don't think Miami has enough counters to win. I mean, the, the whole thing, one of the big storylines coming in, of course, was Spo versus Bud again. That's so bad for the Bucks, And usually it would be, one, Bud has done a, a masterful job making the most out of his team this year, which we didn't see last year. So credit to him. But I think really why I don't see any comeback coming for the Heat, any extended comeback, you know, sustainable to get them back in the series, not just take a game, is Spo just doesn't have the pieces this year. I mean, you talked about Kendrick Nunn. He's either going to remain a starter or be probably their most important bench player if they ended up starting Dragic in, uh, ahead of him. Like, th- that's not that's not a good feeling if Kendrick Nunn has to be one of your five or six best players in this series. Like, Trevor Ariza is their starting power forward for the moment. Again, we'll see if they make an adjustment there. Maybe Deadman comes in to play center and they move Bam to the four. But still, Trevor Ariza has accomplished essentially nothing this series. I mean, you look at the bench. Tyler Harrow has been a non-factor for basically this entire series. Andre Iguodala, as great as he still can be defensively, it's hard to play him extended minutes just because the offense is is not there. So there's so many players on the Heat who either are accomplishing, you know, not much, nothing, mm. or they're so one-sided that the more you play them, the more you're opening up something else for the Bucs. You're either making it easier for the Bucs offensively or defensively. And I think that's why... It's just such an uphill slope for Miami to get over. You know, you know, some adjustments, maybe you can get Jimmy or Bam going. I think that's probably how Miami takes a game is just Jimmy goes incredible and, and puts up 30 on a bunch of tough shots. But he wasn't even interested in shooting that much in game two. So I really think the Heat are discombobulated, and I don't think they have the pieces to counterattack. And, you know, you'd have to run off like a couple sustained winning streaks right now and all the Bucks need to do is win their games at home. So, even, like, it just feels like the Bucks are in such an advantageous position, and they they haven't had the counter so far. Their their strategy, basically from the jump, has worked. What has been the biggest difference between this year's Bucks Heat series and last year's Bucks Heat series? Ooh, um, you know, I think. The Heat are, are, aren't as deep. I think that really is is showcased. I think Jay Crowder was so mm. incredibly good in that series. And Ariza, instead of him, has just been, goodness, it's night and day. I mean, Crowder was taking on the primary Giannis assignment for a lot of that series, doing amazing work, switching on to Chris Middleton, doing great work. And I think he hit 22 threes in the five games, which is just outrageous shot making uh, from him. He's gone now. That's made a huge difference. I mean, they just they need more two-way wings. And they just don't have enough to really keep up with the Bucs. But I would say even bigger than that is, I think, Drew Holiday's addition for Milwaukee. Because even given all the advantages that I mentioned previously, I still think Game 1 probably ends up going to Miami if Drew is not a Buck. Actually, certainly. I think Drew was so crucial in that game, despite not having the, the, you know, the, the most booming box score ever. And I think if, if it's Bledsoe instead of him or whoever else, if they start Hill, still have Hill instead of him, I don't think there's any way the Bucks win that game. His two-way brilliance has really been on display. I mean, game two, 
picks up 15 assists. I think he had eight in the first quarter, really mm. just dicing up that heat half court defense and finding those buck shooters for all those threes. So I would say adding Drew is probably going to be the biggest change for the Bucks in any given matchup. And that's certainly been the case so far. He's done incredible work. And then one last one. I know you asked for one and I gave you three. <laughs> Using Giannis on ball now, I think has made such a difference. The way they're guarding Jimmy Butler, I mean, it's no wonder he's been a little hesitant to sh- He's got Giannis guarding him for most of the game. Then sometimes they'll shift to PJ Tucker or Drew Holiday being the primary. He's trying to run these pick and rolls. He's getting switches. And it's just another one of those guys. There's no, there's no break. There's no, there's no time when he has a bad defender on him. I mean, he has, he's had Bryn Forbes a couple of times, and Bryn Forbes is done okay. But most of the game, it's one of those three who are all just all world defenders with Brooke Lopez manning that back line, dropping against Bam. So they're really doing a lot against Jimmy. I mean, Jimmy in the fourth quarter, Bud didn't play Wes Matthews for whatever reason, two games in the bubble last year, and Jimmy just carved up the Bucks this year. It has been the exact opposite. They have not let him get going. And it's one of those where we can talk about all these strategies and different things. But I think it's pretty simple. At the end of the day, if your best player is not able to ever get going, it just gets really hard to win in the NBA. Do you think they were like a lot of the looks too? I was thinking about this and it's a make or miss league and all that kind of stuff. But like um, I watched game one fully and it was game one was just awesome for a variety of reasons. But something I thought about was just that like, <laughs> when we overreact to shooting and things like that, where in my nuts, I'm like, the Bucks missed a lot of good looks and it felt like they probably should have won that game by more. Um, do you think the Bucks got the same kind of looks from game one to game two, or do you think the looks were better? And that was the a bigger reason as to why they shot lights out. Or do you think the looks were mostly the same? They were probably a little better in game two. I mm. think, um, I, I think Milwaukee, I think it all starts with the defense in this series for this Bucks team. And I think game one, the big adjustment they made later in game one, and especially in game two, was they were just basically like, we're not going to let Duncan Robinson shoot threes. Early in game one, he's, he had the first the Heat's first nine points. The Heat started off ahead in game one because he is getting loose and just drilling threes against the Bucks. And that was that's the one thorn in the side of the drop coverage always has been, right? Like you drop too much and shooters can go around screens on, on the, the big guy you're dropping against and just be wide open. And that was how that was basically the Heat's only sustainable offense in game one was Duncan Robinson and also Goran Dragic hitting these threes. The Bucks adjust not by stopping to drop. They're letting Lopez sit back there, but they're just helping from all over. They're bringing weak side help. They're basically just saying we're going to run Duncan off the three-point line. Like, that's going to happen. He's not shooting open threes. We will funnel him into the paint. The, the Heat may have numbers occasionally. That's great. You still have to get through Giannis and Brooke Lopez to score at the rim. Like, good luck. Duncan Robinson has been a better driver this year, for sure. Has he been good enough to get through Giannis and Brooke Lopez with another defender on, on his hip? No, not really. Very few players are. So I think the Bucks doing that, really took away Miami's ability to to generate real points. And it just ended up making the game so much easier offensively because Miami wasn't able to get any momentum. So I think Duncan makes seven threes in game one. The Bucks made five. He only attempts six in game two and makes two of them. That's a huge number for Milwaukee to keep his attempts low. And I think doing so really sputtered Miami's offense and then led to you know more fast break points, more long rebounds and eking out. And just the rebounding in general, Milwaukee has out-rebounded the Heat by a ton so far this series. 
And some of those offensive rebounds are, are definitely leading to open threes. But I think stifling that heat offense has resulted in a lot of transition or semi-transition looks that are just like ideal for a guy like Bryn Forbes, who, you know, there's some shooters that they kind of need to be set up just right to shoot and everything else. Not Bryn Forbes, man. This guy will full speed run into a three. He does not care. Uh, and he showed why that can be so effective in game two. So uh, I think the looks were probably a little bit better, but for sure, I think the number of wide open looks they missed in game one was certainly an anomaly. So it's not like they got no looks then. I do think they even took it to another level in game two, though. I think what interests me most the rest of this series is what happens in Miami where they do they do kind of flip the script in terms of pace because these two teams play completely different styles when they yeah. um, when they get at their best. And I think it's unrealistic to expect Milwaukee to be able to impose their will pace-wise for four straight games. So if Miami is able to flip it and control the pace significantly better and not get in a sprint um, with Milwaukee as they had to do in games one and two, is Milwaukee well-equipped to handle a slower prodding style that Miami really wants to get into with them. I think so. I, I really do think so. I think certainly the faster, the better for the Bucks, And that was, that was the story of game two. I mean, clearly with the game moving at that speed, it was just impossible for the heat to keep up. They just, they don't have the offensive weaponry against this Bucks team to match, you know, 130 points. I mean, they, they couldn't get to hundred. So I think slowing down will play into Miami's hands, but I don't know if it'll do enough. I mean, you know, that's not going to stop the offensive rebounds the Bucs are generating right now. You know, the Bucs are just bigger. Unless the Heat want to play, they're only two bigs who have seen real minutes together, which I don't know how that's going to hold up defensively against this Bucs team or offensively, but they can certainly try it. I mean, Dwayne Dedman certainly made the most of his offensive looks in game two, but still I think they lost his minutes by 15 points despite him shooting eight for 11 just because – when whoever is he's guarding is just seeing pure meat right now and just scoring over and over. So I, I think the offensive rebounds will probably still be there for the Bucs. I think really in the half court, they started to figure some things out. Um, Giannis slowed down a bit and was picking his spots better, I think. He was moving off of ball screens better and not just trying to charge into the, the heat defense as much. And you saw his assists go up. I think he tallied six of six, second most on the team in game two. I think Giannis is getting more comfortable in the half court and really realizing Miami just doesn't have that many options for him. I, mean, I think Bam is their best option on Giannis. But, you know, if you're playing Bam as the five, then who are you putting on Brooke Lopez? We already, I already mentioned the rebounding totals. If you try to stick Trevor Ariza or something on Brooke Lopez, he can go down to the paint and get two points and or a foul whenever he wants. So there's just some tough questions for the Heat to answer. And then the other thing is you pretty much are having to play guys like Kendrick Nunn. Goran Dragic, uh, Duncan Robinson to, to score points. But those guys then find themselves matched up on Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday on the other end. That's gone really poor for the Heat. I mean, Chris Middleton dunked on Duncan Robinson. Do you know how, how rarely Chris Middleton dunks? Do you know how in his bag he has to be to, to dunk on someone? I mean, he's just so comfortable. I think he was four for five for however many points in game two. Just getting whatever he felt like didn't take more shots. He didn't have to, but I just don't think Miami has the the players to, to keep up with this Bucks team on, on both sides, even if they can slow the pace down, which again, they, they they're taking their time on offense. They're just not coming up with many good looks. So to me, it just feels like it, it's a really unenviable situation for Eric Spolster, who I do think is a tremendous coach. I just don't know how many good options, if any are available right now. 
Last thing we'll wrap up here, Ty. Um, what do you what do you think ultimately happens here? Are are you two games into the playoffs with this iteration of the Bucks? Do you think that they should be considered the favorites to get out of the East at this point, or do you do you think there are still some concerns with Brooklyn, with Philly? Do you have a bigger concern with one or the other? Um, where are you at right now? I think they demolish Philly if they get there. Okay, just. No, no question. I think you're, you're, what you're seeing with the this Heat team and the issues they're having in the half court, I think that's going to be the same deal for Philly. I mean, they have a better p- overall player in Embiid for sure, and him getting Lopez in a foul trouble could could help swing that a bit in itself, and that's totally a, a possibility. But when Philly is playing, I mean, they just have so many non-shooters, right? And the Bucks are, have shown they're really comfortable against teams like that. I mean, you're going to see Embiid, who actually is kind of a shooter now. I shouldn't even consider Embiid in, as one of these, but Tybalt's going to play. Ben Simmons is going to play. Dwight Howard is going to play. Um, there's some other players out there who are, you know, they can shoot, but maybe they're not, you know, the the best shooters or the most comfortable. A guy like Maxi, who seems like he's a little bit on and off. Like, I just think Milwaukee would be comfortable in that matchup. And um, we've seen the Bucks have a lot of success against Philly this regular season, although Philly wasn't healthy. But I do not think the Bucks should be favorites just yet. And I think really due to no fault of their own. I don't know how much better Milwaukee could have looked. And I do think they, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to drop against Brooklyn a whole series. I think we're going to see a lot less Lopez and a lot more PJ Tucker. I honestly think they're kind of saving him for that matchup right now. That's why he's not playing as much. But I just think, how can you call a team a favorite when there's another team in the conference with Kevin Durant, James Harden, Kyrie Irving, Joe Harris, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, Nick Clax. I mean, okay, I'm getting to Nick Clax. I'm getting a little... Getting a little out of scope now, but a lot of good players and three legitimate superstar players. And, you know, you can argue about the fit. You can talk about defense. I think the Bucks have a chance, but I find it hard to call them the favorites given what that Brooklyn team has on the roster. I do think that series could end up being an all-timer. I'm, I'm, I'm not looking forward to it yet because obviously the Bucks still have two wins to go here in the first round. But I think that will be a tremendous series. It's just hard to say anyone but Brooklyn is the favorite in the East or maybe even the NBA right now. What can we check out from uh, you this week at the Gower Step? Yeah, man. Um, so we actually just made the Eurostep Podcast Network. So it's one feed with Eurostep Podcast and the Win in Six Podcast, two great Bucks podcasts, basically join forces to make as much great content as possible. So if you search up Eurostep Podcast Network, wherever you get your pods, you will find everything. We're doing a post-game pod after every single game. The game 2-1 went up late last night slash early this morning. It was a lot of fun. Uh, we really enjoyed breaking down this game uh, and probably getting a little reckless with, with some of the predictions for the rest of the series. But there's going to be a pod after every game. I think Win in 6 Mailbag pod goes up tomorrow. So just really pretty much daily great Bucks coverage as long as this run goes on and, and definitely going to keep up the coverage after the run as well whenever it ends up ending hopefully several several weeks from now unless you get matched up with the hawks in the eastern conference finals and then whoa 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 you know what i'm not even ready to see bogdan bogdanovich in a playoff series yet. i I think it would uh, i think it would go well for the bucks but (laughs) too much hurt too much hurt right now that wound is not healed yet I appreciate it, though. I appreciate y'all's uh, incompetence. Shout out to John Horst <laughs> for that. That was nice. I mean, Bogey saved the Hawks season, so I am, I'm here for it, Ty. We're, we're, blaming, we're blaming the corrupt league office for that, not the Bucks. 
Fair enough. Fair enough. Ty, thank you as always for the time. I greatly appreciate it. Go check out Ty's podcast. If you have not already, go check out all the great podcasts at bluewirepods.com if you have not already done so. All right. We will talk again very soon. Thanks, Ty. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right, the Tuesday edition of the Chase Ones podcast rolls on with Larry Williams, who covers the Clemson Tigers, a, let me check my notes here, very good college football team as of the last decade, <laughs> I believe. Larry, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Glad to be with you. Do you get bored of it? Do you get bored of the winning? It, like, are you going to give me a Nick Saban answer with Marcus Spears, or are you uh, are you not bored with the Clemson dominance as no, of yet? No, no. In fact, like all I have to do is look around uh, people who cover up some other teams mm-hmm. and imagine myself in that situation and and think, ooh, I'm pretty not only fortunate to be covering a team that's always in the playoff and always in the championship discussion but also one that's so entertaining with you know Dabo Sweeney always speaking his mind and Mm -hmm. just there's so many stories that that are able to be unearthed um when you're around somebody like that who has such a good story in his own right just with his background and all that and I think that when you have built the program like he has um you have a lot of good people inside of it, you know, and when you're able to be as selective as they have and been in recruiting, then it follows that there's a lot of entertaining people under him. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think I just told somebody this last week, you know, had they, had they stayed like, you know, eight and five, seven and six level that they were under Tommy Bowden for another, 15 years, I'd probably be doing something else just because that's just, that's what's boring to me. Um, just, just, just mediocrity year after year. And so, um, yeah, so I, I and, and then um, this is long winded, but I mean, you know, 30 years from now, you know, me looking back saying, wow, that was one of the great stories in college football history. And so whenever I get bored or frustrated with something or, you know, I'd rather be doing something else on a particular day. I think about that, that, Hey man, you're pretty fortunate. Okay. I'll allow it. I'll allow it. I want to be mad at you <laughs> for being able to cover a normal winning program. Um, but we'll, we'll get into my program that, uh, I'm very familiar with that, uh, was poaching one of your coaches. We'll get to that in a second. But, um, when you look at the ACC landscape, because, um, on the Thursday show, we do college football, and my friend Matt and I talk a lot about the tiers across the college football landscape and how people can enjoy college football if you're an Oregon State fan versus a Clemson fan and what you go into every season with your expectations. But like, if you're one of the rising teams in the ACC, if you're because I think Clemson is their own tier, um, Miami's close, North Carolina's close, I suppose. Close is relative depending on um, who you ask and. Um, that sort of thing. Yeah. But who do you think is really, when you look at the landscape of where they're building, where the programs are, where the money is that pose the biggest threat 
to becoming on the same tier of the Clemson Tigers in the next two to three years. Is there anyone that can get there? Or do you think that the North Carolinas, the Miamis, the Georgia Techs, the Florida States will continue to be on tier two as long as Clemson and Dabo and this group is rolling the way they are? I tend to think the latter of what you just said. And, and really, I mean, the, the the teams out there that Clemson fans spend their time being worried about or thinking about and the teams that I think about um, as being their biggest threats are all outside the ACC. You know, they've just gotten to that point where, you know, it's a constant measuring stick, you know, with Alabama, now Ohio State, and, and Georgia, I would say, as well, mm-hmm. for sure. Oklahoma, to an extent. I, I, I mean, I'm constantly, I as a, as a writer, I'm constantly sort of monitoring those teams, and I'm monitoring the other teams in the ACC, a lot less. I think that North Carolina is showing a lot of promising signs under Mac Brown, largely because of their recruiting. Mm-hmm. Um, they are a factor now. Uh, I don't, you know, it remains to be seen whether they're going to be enough of a factor to start taking players away from Clemson, but they're enough of a factor in North Carolina that, you know, Mac Brown has done a fantastic job and now he is, he is putting a big, push on facilities and getting all of their administration on the same page and on board with winning big in football. That's what you have to do. Yeah. And especially at North Carolina where you, you know, you're living in this sort of perpetual identity sort of conflict just because basketball is always the top dog there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say this, you have, if you're in the ACC, if you're the ACC, I guess I should say, you have to have the blue blood, so-called blue blood programs flourishing and mm-hmm. that is those down in florida miami and florida state there's just no way around it um you know when john swafford pulled off the audacious move of, of raiding the, the the big east to get uh, miami and virginia tech at that time it was a master stroke because miami was a national championship type and Virginia Tech was ex- solid. Well, the Hokies held up there into the bargain by, I guess, spending about seven, eight, nine years um, dominating the ACC. Meanwhile, the Hurricanes just collapsed. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that's no fault of the the ACC brain trust uh, in Greensboro. I think it's the fault of Miami. Same thing with Florida State, how they just – unraveled in a spectacular way. And so I think the ACC's best path to answering this predominant question being who can, who can rise up and, 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 and uh, compliment Clemson as a, to give the ACC another top 10 ish team, which programs out there can, you know, make Clemson fans lose sleep. I think the best route is, is for the, it's for Miami and Florida State to get back to that level. Obviously, Miami seems closer right now, but I would say in the next two or three years, North Carolina would that'd be my that'd be my pick for um, for the team that could that could give Clemson some trouble with Miami in there as well. But but again, Clemson is just so far ahead right now, and I think that with the ACC. Their problem is always going to be, it always has been, as it relates to football, 
just not enough people in the conference. There's not enough passion for football. Yeah. Um, not enough people spend 365 days a year thinking, how can we get better in football? Whereas the SEC, you don't think people you know, are thinking about Dave Doran's offensive schematic <laughs> choices in mid April. Yeah. I'll say, I've, I've said this for a few years, you know, amid the, the network conference network conversation, you know, like, you know, how many SE, what's the percentage of SEC fans who, if they're local, you know, in, in Greenbow, Alabama, if that cable company didn't carry the SEC network, network, what's the percentage of SEC fans that would burn the place down within 10 <laughs> minutes? You know, probably 98%. Whereas yeah. in the ACC, oh, let's see, maybe 20%, you know. Mm. So I think that's that's their, that's what they have been up against for a while. And I think it's what they're going to be up against, you know, in the future as the revenue gap as they try to just not get even in the revenue gap with the other conf- with the, with the SEC and the Big Ten, but just try to maintain the current gap, you yeah. know? Yeah, you're They're not catching to the fall SEC. Farther, farther behind. And that's a, it's a daunting question for sure for the ACC as a whole. The biggest stylistic change from Trevor Lawrence to G.J. Ugalehi in 2021 will be what? What installs will, will look the most different? Um... It'll be uh, DJ will be a, a more Cam Newton type runner as opposed to Trevor was more of a zone read sort of sleight of hand. He was great at at diagnosing you know whether to pull or give based on what the defensive end did, and then he was excellent. He had excellent short area quickness. You know, I mean, he's not Trevor Lawrence isn't you know, the greatest running quarterback ever, man, he was really good when he had to be uh, at, 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 at sort of exploiting the numbers advantage that you get when you run the zone read and such. Um, and your quarterback is a, is a runner. I think BJ will be more of a design run type of uh, short yardage um, red zone weapon where, you know, you see him run quarterback counters and things like that just because he's so big. He's like 250 pounds. Um, and one of his main objectives this summer is getting his body into optimum shape to be able to withstand the pounding that comes when you're a runner. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that, um, Trevor is just like, you know, when you watch DJ, it really dawns on you how great Trevor was. And that's not a knock against DJ. It's just that Trevor was from the moment he got here was just a super special talent with very few flaws. And, um, you know, you have another elite quarterback right behind him, which is remarkable. But you can see some things that need refining with DJ. Uh, but I think that's much more just a credit to the generational talent that Trevor was, and less a less a knock on on DJ and and, and all of his many skills. Will Shipley will make an immediate impact for Clemson in twenty twenty one? Yes or no? I don't think so in terms of if, if, if you define that by, you know, being the bell cow running back or whatever, being mm-hmm. the starter the whole season, although I'm not totally discounting that notion. Um, I think it's more they're going to find a way to get him on the field, find a way to get him the ball in space. And uh, I do think he will be a contributor um, as to whether he'll be the top running back in that running back room. Not so sure about that, but they loved him from day one that he when he arrived as an early enrollee and 
nothing but favorable reviews so far. I do think he's more advanced than your typical freshman running back. And so mm. I, I don't think we're going to see him sitting on the sideline all year. Could you beat him in a 40 or no? Pardon? Could you Could beat, him beat him in a 40 yard dash or no? Is that no? <laughs> no, Larry? Oh, not, not with these 46-year-old uh, uh, hamstrings. No. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think I could either. <laughs> um, how close was Tony Elliott to becoming a Tennessee volunteer as a Tennessee fan right here and grad student? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I've always wanted to know. He was close. He, uh, he, he, he viewed that as seriously as any, I think, opportunity he has had since he's been at Clemson, and he has had some. Mm-hmm. But I would say more seriously. Um, you know, there were, uh, there were some staffers here and elsewhere who were, were going to go with him who were maybe a little surprised he didn't take the job. So I think in the end it came down to um, two things. Number one, Tony is extraordinarily comfortable in his own skin and is not the climber type. He appreciates what he has in the moment and he loves it here. He loves the family environment and all that. Of course, he's paid a lot of money. Um, the other is that just the, the, the dysfunction and the administration, I think, in the past, well, that doesn't that's sound like some people off. Knoxville. That that doesn't sound like Rocky Top. That's that's all hearsay. Sounds like about half the schools in the in the SEC, honestly. Whoa, whoa, shots um, fired! Look, it just means no, more here, Larry. It just means more. You yeah, know that's this. Just, you know. Um, honestly, getting back to the revenue discussion for a second, I mean, that's really the best hope for the ACC is that is that that dysfunction just continues and with a lot of these SEC schools and they spend all that extra money on buyouts yeah. and of coaches every three years. And that's a great equalizer, but, but no, I think, um, but they're also getting $23 million a piece for virus losses. True. True. It's just, Very true. It's Very just true. The, it's just the, an unlimited amount of money. It seems like. Yeah, that's right. So I think it was just the, you know, Elliot, not just Elliot, but other Clemson assistants as well. I'm talking about mainly Brent Venables. They've been very selective and cautious with where they go and, you know, out of the fear of, okay, yeah, you're going to make a lot of money, but in three years, are you going to be an offensive coordinator again somewhere, you know, mm-hmm. and wishing you were back at Clemson? I think Chad Morris is kind of a cautionary tale. Yeah. Um, because he had the itch to get out of here. Uh, and took the SNU job, of course, and gets to Arkansas, and it just it just collapses. And, and now he's, um, gosh, where is he? He was at Auburn, and now he is at. He's at like a. a is he back ago. in high school? I want to say he's back in high school. I, oh, that's right. Yes, he went back to high school. That's right. Mm. That's right. Yep, in, in Texas. But anyway, so you know, I, I guess I think a big part of it is just appreciating when you are in a really good situation, and the coaches here certainly are. I think it's savoring that and, and holding on to that more than coaches typically do. Yeah. Um, if you had to bet your your life savings, Larry, so no pressure here, is Dabo a Clemson lifer? Oh, man. Um, I would not bet my life savings on that. I don't think he's going to go to Alabama. I don't either. I don't think, I don't think he has any interest yeah. in following Nick Saban. I don't believe in any of that. I don't think anyone really wants to follow Saban at Bama. I don't think that's an interest for him. 
And also, he doesn't have to. Go. He can beat Bama. He doesn't That's need right. to. Yeah, yeah, I just, I never understood that line of thinking. He's got his baby here, and um, I mean, they've been here. This is his. This was crazy. This uh, he will have been here for nine. This is his nineteenth year here. Is it real? Well, not as head coach. Okay. Yeah. Not as thirteenth. Thirteenth as a head coach. That's, That's a long crazy. time. I'm just saying that. Yeah. He spent. He had spent more time in his life. At Clemson, and he spent at Alabama. He spent a lot of time at Alabama as a as a player and a coach. Mm-hmm. And so his 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 family's from here. Is I mean that's all they know. Mm-hmm. His kids. That's all they know. Really, I you know I tell people don't don't totally discount the NFL thing. I'm not predicting hmm. it. As recruiting gets harder, as you have to, rec- you know, just read that you, Chris you not only, piece. Yeah, I mean, anymore, you don't have – recruiting is not just about recruiting high school guys, It's and it's not just about recruiting maybe portal guys. It's about recruiting the guys who are on your own roster. Yeah. That's exhausting. And yeah. so I'm not saying that Dabo is throwing up his hands and saying, I can't do this. But I'm just saying when you present the option and Urban Meyer, it'll be interesting to see how he uh, – you know, what, what evolves there um, – but you actually have some time off as, a, yeah. as an NFL coach. You know, you have an, you have an actual off season. Um, whereas in, if you're a college coach, you know, I mean, it used to be you were gone most of the summer. Uh, now, shoot, man, you're it, it's it's uh, you're also just thinking about packed. it all the time. Like Peterson talked about that right. um, in that piece in the Athletic, uh, which was just really good yeah. and really. Um, really fascinating to get his perspective on it where it's just even you're just thinking about everything you're thinking about families you're thinking about all kinds of stuff at all hours but in the nfl you just uh you can kind of shut your brain off go on vacation just take a take some time away i mean that's why chip kelly left do you i i just i think recruiting is getting more and more exhausting for a lot of these coaches um but then there are people like nick who i think really genuinely loves it like he loves that and he loves that grind i think it keeps him keeps him young and active and uh the oatmeal cream pies i'm sure sure help but uh, well yeah, yeah. and, and the, i think the difference between saban and Dabo is and i don't i don't know saban but i mean just based on all the available evidence he would not know what to do with himself yes. if you weren't coaching like his wife probably, i don't think wants him know. to stop you watch those interviews yeah, she's whereas, like no i love that he's yeah. just doing this all the time i think all these whereas Dabo, i think is way different i think he hmm. could absolutely find stuff to do and be happy doing whatever he's doing, whether it's football or, um, you know, religious based stuff, whatever. I just think Dabo's more comfortable in his own skin. That's probably not the right way to put it. Um, just more, I think he's just generally happier Mm -hmm. doing whatever he's doing. Uh, if that makes sense. Whereas Saban is maniacal (laughs) about, about the football thing. Obviously it's paid off handsomely as he's the you know arguably the top coach in college football history last thing and we'll wrap up here larry um justin ross what's the latest oh there's no latest he's just waiting um he's got his i think final visit with the surgeon who performed his neck surgery last i guess a year ago um and he's hoping to be cleared for full contact but we won't know that until i guess next month at the earliest. And so hmm. I think they're optimistic, but I also, I'm not just talking it up as a done deal either. So I guess we'll see it. You certainly, 
hope for the best for that kid because he um, he has a lot of talent and can make a lot of money uh, playing this game. There you go. Uh, Larry, thank you so much for the time. What can we check out from you at Tigers Illustrated this week? Oh, just so we're just typical summer um, when nothing's going on. We have a series of 21 for 21, 21 topics for the 21 season. And mm-hmm. so uh, as of yesterday, yesterday was the first first installment and we sort of we sort of dug into the question of even though there's full capacity being announced at all these schools and, and the, the, the gates will be open, how many of these stadiums are actually going to be full capacity, not because of restrictions, but because of because fans have found it easier just to stay home and cheaper mm. just to stay home and sit on the couch. I don't, you know, I, I mean, Clemson is largely immune, has been largely immune to that type of thing because they just have such a, a great product. But I don't think you're going to see, I don't think you're going to see Death Valley just stuck to the gills every Saturday. Um, and a lot of that's related to, to to the the schedule is just very the home schedule is just very blah so it'll be interesting to see across college football i think it was ross uh, bjork a and m's ad who said hey we can say full we can say that full capacity but people start to buy the tickets you know yeah so um i think as we're all overjoyed that uh we're gonna have a more normal uh environment uh with college football one of the little one of the things to monitor is is okay how many What's it going to look like uh, in terms of actual turnout? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you up here in Knoxville. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and guess that uh, Knoxville is going to be 100% filled. Just going to be a uh, guess based on the baseball. You think so? Yeah, I think it's I think it's going to be pretty pretty locked in, uh, especially for that uh, opener against Bowling Green on Thursday night. I am I'm, I'm going to go ahead and lock it in that they're going to be at full capacity. I, I could be wrong, but um, I'm going to go ahead and pencil that one in. Well, I've been there when it's been full, and it's a great place to watch a football game for sure. It'd be nice if it wasn't painful and you didn't want to like gouge your eyes <laughs> out most Saturdays. That would be nice. Um, Larry, thank you so much for the time. I greatly appreciate it. Let's uh, talk again soon. Yeah, anytime. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.